Hi, brothers and sisters, and friends and seekers, and everybody in between. I'm going to call this message today, Daughters of Sarah, with a subtitle, Not Eunuch Makers. I want to start out by saying, he, the pronoun he, refers to God the Father. You can see that in Genesis 1.27. He, again, refers to Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1.21 and other places, he again refers to the Holy Spirit. You can find that in John 4.26 and other places. These refer to each member of the Godhead individually. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And in the next verse, 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. So here we have both the pronouns, the individual pronouns, he and his and him. And we also have us and our in the collective sense of the pronoun. So the words us and our refer to the Godhead collectively. Now from the beginning of God's revelation of himself to us, the Bible, he reveals himself in the masculine. God created or made all things. We know this. Genesis chapter 1 says this. God is sovereign. Acts 4.24, Revelation 5.10, and others tell us that. God is the ultimate authority and the beginning of all authority. We find this in Romans 13.1, Matthew 28.18, and other places. So the Father's ordained design is God as the head of Christ, Christ as the head of every man and the church, and man as the head of woman. And we can find this in 1 Corinthians 11.3. So let me state this premise again. The Father's ordained design is God as the head over Christ, Christ as the head over every man, and man as the head over woman. And this is biblical, this is scriptural. 1 Corinthians 11.3. Now, the authority structure, ordained and established by the Father in his wisdom and his perfection, is again, God as head of Jesus, Jesus as head of man, and man as head of woman. Now, this is not pro-male and it's not anti-female. This is not man's superiority or women's inferiority, for that matter. And this is not male chauvinism and it's not misogyny. This is God's preeminence and his created order. If you believe the Bible is God's holy and inerrant word, that means without any fault, then you've got to submit to this. You've got to trust that it's right and good. And if your thinking is not that way, then you have to realign yourself to this. Submit to this. Okay? This is part of creation. And it's all called good from the very beginning, culminating in Chapter 1, verse 31, where God just not only says everything is good, he says God saw everything that he made, and behold, it's very good. Some Christians, churches, and perhaps even whole denominations, preach and teach what is called egalitarianism. And this is the belief, inside and outside the church, that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities sounds okay but it's a little vague perhaps that's part of the attraction when it finds its way from outside the church body to inside the church the ecclesia the people things change and they should because the church is different from the outside world in the church egalitarianism is defined or purported as this says, within Christianity, it's a movement based on the theological view of some, or even many, that not only are all people equal before God and in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home or the church or even society. This simply isn't biblical. Value and worth in the eyes of the God, our Creator? Absolutely but not with respect to roles and function. 
we have to understand that. Scriptures such as Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, verses all of, virtually all of it. Genesis 3:16, Luke 2:36, Exodus 15:20, Judges 4:4, 4, 4, 2 Chronicles 34:22, Romans 16:1 all designate the roles of deaconess or prophetess to a woman. And those are unique roles and functions. While scriptures such as 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, Titus 1, 5 through 9, and 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 12, teach plainly men's roles, specifically leadership in the church. If you'll read these, you'll once again notice the clear designation of the pronoun, pronoun he laid out. This was started thousands of years ago, and it's still going on thousand years since. From the very, very beginning, God has not changed his order. And since everything is, he does is perfect, it doesn't need to change. Paul could have simply given his instruction in, to us and left it at that, but he also gave us two reasons for it. Number one, Adam, he points out, was formed first, then Eve, the Bible says. And two, he says, Adam was not the one deceived by Satan, but the woman, Eve, and she became the transgressor. Anyone that dis disputes these, either in argument or in their vocation, has to either misinterpret or misunderstand the scripture, or to purposely contort the word to fit their own desires. Now, many women, many upright women of God, are very able to exegete the word, to teach and explain the word of God. So, you know, it's not a matter of skill or talent or ability, as far as men and women are concerned, but it is, however, a clear and primary responsibility and function given to men alone. Women are, though, able to teach and train children and other women. Titus 2, 3 through 5 tells us that. And if you're looking for a good example of that, look to Nancy DeMoss. As you may have known her, she has a great ministry to women called Revive Our Hearts. And she's written several books. She's gotten married a few years ago, so she's Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth is her new last name. She's a great example. While Beth Moore is a poor example. Another term used widely in the church at large today is complementarianism. Now, I believe, from what I hear and read, a large portion of those who hold to this tradition do so more out of a compromised theology, and I'll explain that in a minute. So, this is defined as, although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they're created to complement each other via different roles in life and in the church. This view is better, and it's doctrinally tweaked, but it's still falls short of what I'm sold on that the Father and Scripture teach, and that's why I, I'm addressing it. Now, as far as a lot of churches, not all, a lot of seminaries, not all, a lot of Christian universities, not all, in the West are concerned, these two, the egalitarianism and the complementarianism, are mainly the only two options that you hear about. But the Bible speaks from the very beginning about a third option, but actually the only rightly held one, it's called a patriarchy. Now, patriarchy is defined, even in modern and secular terms, as this, a system of society or government in which the father or eldest male is head of the family and the descent or the lineage of that family is traced through the male line. We can see this in reference to the biblical patriarchs, including Adam, Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, and others. Um, even two major genealogies, as listed in Genesis 5, 3 through 32, yeah, that's a long passage, and Matthew 1 through 17, they're referenced solely according to the men, the progenitors of families, societies, and nations. Scripture often speaks of the seed as being the known means of creation. 
and procreation. So the sperm, the spermatozoa, has to fertilize the egg or the ovum. Now, men and women both contribute, absolutely, but it's the male seed, if you look it up, that has the function of making an egg able to produce the child. So we see a confirmation again of God as the head of Jesus, Jesus as the head of man, man is the head of woman, and even woman is head of the child in biology as well, as we just read. So it's God-ordained. It's God-designed, and this has lasted for a very, very, very long time with no problems. As is the case with human nature and rebellion, along with the evil one, this supernaturally designed order eventually began to change. Now, by some sources, it began, began back in the 1800s or something like that, but it began more noticeably and more radically in the 1960s and 70s. And this is what I remember as a kid. This was not only a time in our country that the gates of sex and drugs flung wide open, but feminism began to grow and flourish. And I'm not referring to rights and privileges that women should be able to have and share with men, such as the ability to vote. I'm talking about the improper counterbalance that took and is still taking place. Up until the 1950s, even television, which often acts as both a microphone and a, a mirror for the culture, reflected a right patriarchal system beginning with the family. Father knows best comes to mind. That was before my time. It was black and white, but I'm, from, I'm familiar with it. This was slightly before my time, as I said, but I know that this show at least reflected the correct order in the home and the correct value of the father or male being the head, the one the wife and children recognized, treated as, and submitted to, and looked to as the authority within the household and family unit and structure. If and when the husband or father did not acknowledge, follow, and obey God in his word, this structure didn't work nearly as well as intended or at all. This is the man's responsibility and fault. Yet it was still the order. So the order didn't change, nor did it need to. It was the people and their response to that, or submission to, or obedience to, that changed. The Bible even acknowledges and addresses this issue in 1 Peter chapter 3, first two verses. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to or submit to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verses 4 through the beginning of verse 6 continue by saying to the wives, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and soft, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, the verse says. This same attitude of humility and grace and submission extends beyond the home, too, if you're tempted to disbelieve the principle that I'm sharing. Which I'm sure a lot of people will have an issue with this, but it's, it's God's word. It's true. Look to the previous chapter, um, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, to see the examples of a slave-owner relationship and um, government versus its citizens relationship and Jesus' character before Pilate. This important passage sets a precedent, sets the precedent. Be subject 
for the Lord's sake, or in other words, submit yourself to, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, including family, government, okay, church, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. We always say we want to know what the will of God is. We want to be in the will of God. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters in the church. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to or submit to your masters, your authority, with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. It says, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But... If when you do good and you happen to suffer for it and you're beaten for it and you endure, it's a good thing. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, it says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth when this happened to him. When he was reviled or spoken evil against, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten them, when, but continued entrusting himself to him, God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed of our sins, not of our ailments and physical traumas, although that can happen, but we've been healed of our sin by his wounds. For you were straying like sheep, we were straying like sheep, but have now returned, if you have, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this is telling us to submit to our authorities, whether good or bad. Why? Because, as it says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, and Jesus did this. And it's an example for us to follow. Our husbands and fathers, good or bad, weak or strong authorities, especially over their wives and children, yes, they can be, as heads of the household, Yes, they can be. Should wives and children submit to and obey them? Yes, also. If we submit to our husbands and fathers, honoring and respecting them, we also honor, respect, and submit to Christ's authority over him and the fathers over Christ's. This is what one of the points or the main point of Romans 13 1 through 7 is. I've learned that several years ago from the Father, and I've gone to this constantly for myself and for others. That's why I can remember that verse off the top of my head. So as that chain of authority was established in the very beginning, as we talked about, okay, Romans says that since all authority comes from and is established by God, that any authority that's been placed over us, whether it's teachers, police, husbands, whoever, if we submit to them, great, we're submitting to God. We're honoring God and them. But if we don't submit to them and we refuse their authority and we overlook it or act like it's nothing or think that we're better than they are, we choose to disobey whenever we feel like it, then we're dishonoring their authority. And because it all fits under God's authority, it, it, it's exactly the same scripture says as if we're disobeying God and dishonoring God, disrespecting God. Now I'm going to make a, a poignant but not too lengthy interjection here, okay? It's poignant, I said. It's pretty strong, okay? It is the husband's and father's responsibility, and it should be his desire to love his wife and his children. Who knows how this makes them feel if they're unloved? It will almost surely bring out the flesh in them and not the spirit. 
remember, we want to starve the flesh. We want to kill the flesh. We want to feed the spirit. We want to nourish the spirit. We want to keep the spirit alive. So in the case of husbands being disrespected, especially by their wives, this attacks their authority. This is maybe something new, ladies, but it's, it's true, okay? Frankly, it makes them feel like eunuchs. And that's why I included it in the title. The title was Daughters of Sarah. And then underneath that was Don't Make Them Eunuchs. Okay. What is a eunuch? Okay, prepare yourself for this. Short and simple, it is a castrated male. Yes, it makes a male impotent. It makes him feel powerless and humiliated. And it strips him of the very authority that God himself has given to him and, and equipped him with and charged him with. Uh, typically, in times past, a eunuch was in service of a harem of a king. Okay, He was castrated, and he knowingly and willingly submitted to it because he was not to be tempted to be aroused or sexually involved with any of the beautiful women that were meant for the king alone. This was a way of ensuring his fidelity. It was a fairly common practice at the time, and you might be surprised to learn that the Lord Jesus himself mentions eunuchs. And he says there's three kinds. In Matthew 19:12, he says plainly, For there are eunuchs who have been so, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, figuratively, maybe even really, maybe even physically, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So, one kind is apparently a sort of birth defect or something similar. Perhaps the parents chose to do it as a preparation for a future palatial service. Okay. The third is most likely more spiritual than physical. You know, Paul made himself a eunuch by not marrying. Okay, what does this mean? Okay, he said this was something he willingly did to have a singular, more devoted service to God and his purposes. He, even, he explained this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 32-34. He says to the Corinthian church, I want you to be free from anxieties. He said the unmarried man is thinking and anxious about the things of the Lord, which is good. He said, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And I can tell you as a husband that that's true. I mean, I love my wife, certainly, and I'm blessed to have a woman. The Bible says that the um, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. But there are times when if you wanted to have real singular devotion to God, it would be, it would be good not to have, you know, your interests split. Should I, I mean, you, you don't, you, you want to say you're a Christian so you believe God and you serve God all the time, but that realistically, you're thinking, do I obey God? Do I obey my wife? I don't want conflict in the home. I don't want to hear backlash, you know. God will understand. Well, no, that's not, okay, what it needs to be. In this sense... Though, being a eunuch is willingly remaining unmarried and celibate. So as to have, as I said, singular devotion to the Lord. But Paul also points out, not many can handle this. So it's better to marry than to burn with passion or sexual desire. Paul says this. In the second instance, okay, Jesus mentioned three eunuchs, okay? Three kinds of eunuchs. So we went to number one. Those were brought maybe that way by birth. And the third one was to make yourself that way, to have singular devotion and committed behavior towards God. Not have to please your wife and please your husband or please um, God at the same time. So Jesus says here in the second instance, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men or women or people. Okay. Now one example of this and why I bring it up is that women can and do Ladies, to let you know, intentionally and unintentionally, make men eunuchs by usurping or overtaking their authority. Just hear this from experience and from the Bible. Now, when a woman rises up out of her position and boundary to do what the man has been given to do, she's making him a eunuch. 
she is spiritually or emotionally castrating him by seeking to take what God has ordained and given to him. This is true. It just is. Hear this. This is not opinion. This is truth. Society has been infiltrated with this fleshly way of thinking and doing for so long it's become accepted. And it's pushing boundaries, okay? This is the very definition of emasculate, okay? If you're familiar with or have ever heard that term, it literally means, in the verbal sense, to deprive a man of his role or identity. And, if that's not bad enough, to make him weaker or less effective as a man, as a leader, as the authority, as the head. And this happens at work. Happens at school, happens in government, worse, and most often it happens in the home, and worse yet, it happens in, and it's happening in, the church, the body of Christ, and the institution and the organization of the church as well. This is a very important reason why Ezra said not to mix the holy race with the peoples of the lands, and this is what is being done. And Deuteronomy 7 says not to intermarry. This is the very word and commands of God himself. To intermarry by that it means mix your godly devotion with the peoples of foreign lands that, that devote themselves to other gods, false gods, idols, idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, divinity, whatever. To take your singular devotion to God and, learn, and eventually or immediately place it elsewhere. Okay, That's what the culture does to us. We'd be very careful to guard ourselves in that manner, but we haven't been, and that's why, that's why the, 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 forgive me, but the castration, the making of men as eunuchs and taking away their authority and usurping their authority has, has creeped into the church, and now people are convinced that it's okay, and it's not okay. It's supposed to have been a patriarchal society, not egalitarianism, not complementarianism. It's supposed to be a patriarchal society. Okay. This culprit has a name. And, brace yourself, it is feminism. To be fair, one definition of feminism is not, it's most likely describing its origins, how it started out. It says the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of equality of the sexes, male and female. For the most part, this sounds okay. Maybe it's even good. But it's no longer just that. And there are two problems with this. First, there are ways men and women are equal in value and dignity and worth, yes. But as we discussed earlier, God has ordained a different order and hierarchy, if you will. Just as man is not equal to Christ, and children are not equal to their parents, women and wives are not equal to men and their husbands. Just as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Remember it says, For by grace you have been saved by faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul is the first to admit this truth. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So why do I mention that? Because as I said earlier, it's not because men are better at this than women, or women are better than this at, at this than men. It's God's ordained, established, perfect, wisdom-filled way of establishing created order and the functions of men and women and the roles of men and women in the family, in society, and in the church patriarchy. Okay? It sounds outdated, but it's not. That's what people always say when they deviate from Scripture and move past that. They want to look back and say the Bible's irrelevant, it's antiquated, and all that. No, what God does from the beginning for Christians and non-Christians, for all mankind, is supposed to be the same. To say otherwise, or to act otherwise, or to have ministries that deviate from that, are all ways of saying God doesn't know what he's talking about, or his ways are imperfect and they need to change, or we need to roll and obey and submit to the culture rather than to our, our Savior, our Almighty, our Maker. 
So I'm saying that it's a result of grace that that those roles and functions have been given to us. Just but just like our, our our salvation is by grace. We haven't done anything to deserve it. We don't have better gifts or abilities to deserve it. It's grace. Paul said, "Whatever I am." a minister or an apostle or a teacher or whatever he says i am whatever i am by the grace of god okay so it's not that men are better or more deserving apart from eve's disobedience not adam's of this position and headship in society in the home and in church it's the way god has planned and purposed things we are recipients of this grace as men, but also charged with responsibility. Just as women may usurp a man's authority, some men may give it up too easily. This too is wrong, okay? As we mentioned, feminism had, perhaps at one time, or even now, has a limited place, and there are still those two incorrect premises that it operates under. The second issue is that it has morphed beyond its original intent. It has sprouted unintentional wings. It's on steroids, however you want to say it. What does this mean? What's it look like? Well, do you remember or have you ever heard the phrase wearing the pants in the house, a relationship? Well, the free online dictionary, just one, gives the right definition and explanation, and it says to have the greatest amount of authority or control or control in one's family. It goes on to say the phrase is often applied to a woman. Why? Because it contrasts or it contradicts the fact that pants were historically only worn by men who were also traditionally the decision makers within a household. Patriarchy, the way it's supposed to be. Okay, This says were twice, showing that feminism has now taken hold. It is not still that way. Women have assumed a role that was not intended for them, quite frankly. As a result, unintended problems, unnecessary issues can arise in a marriage and in a home that don't need to be there. Men will either stand their ground, but rightly and firmly and gently and graciously, I hope, but this can lead to conflicts and arguments. There's that unsingular devotion between God and Scripture and your husband or wife, okay, that shouldn't be there. Or men can give in or acquiesce, okay? Acquiesce means accepting something reluctantly but without outwardly protesting. They can acquiesce to women. So if you have a woman that's got a stronger personality or was raised that way or whatever and so she exerts her authority or will a little over the man if and if he's got a, a, a weaker um well i shouldn't say weaker but not as strong as a character based on numerous issues um growing up he may not want to have conflict he may not want to appear unloving to his wife but instead of being kind and obedient to the word and standing his ground and keeping his authority he gives in for whatever reason and guys this is a form of unintended but kind of purposeful if you do it self-castration why would you do that it even sounds bad it may be incidental or it may be consequential the woman loads the gun, so to speak, but the man pulls the trigger, to use an analogy. Unfortunately, it doesn't usually stop there. It becomes a habit. And the relationship can and often does change for the worse. Wives, maybe even without realizing it, begin to look down on the husband with contempt, the feeling that a person is beneath consideration or worthless or even deserving scorn rather than respect. Both men and women hear me on this. And as a result also, the husband feeling bitterness towards his wife instead of love towards her. And what does this model for the children in the family, if there are any? They're going to live under and observe this ungodly role reversal and most likely live it out eventually in their own lives, at work, in school, in society, and in church. 
the church will be blemished from the outside in. That's what we're talking about. It will become stained from the world around it. The holy race will have mixed itself. The church will have intermarried against God's command not to do so. The seed of infection is planted and the weeds are sown alongside the wheat. Scripture teaches us that men are to preach and teach in the assembling of the body of Christ. The words and instructions and the context are plain and clear. In 1 Timothy 2.12, it says, I, Paul says, I do not permit, not, eh, it's not so bad, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Yet we can observe women like Joyce Meyer, as I mentioned, Beth Moore, Paula White, perhaps even Priscilla Shirer, who I like, but I think she may be unintentionally going this route. Now, a couple of these have had their ministries, if they're true ministries, either wrong from the start, or they've morphed into false teachers because of this. The other two are legitimate Christian women, but they have or are beginning to push beyond these biblical boundaries, and it's rubbing the church the wrong way, and it should rub them the wrong way. It goes against God's instruction. Now, take Abram and Sarai, for example. Abraham is listed as a patriarch. He was chosen, he was blessed, and covenanted with by the Lord to go from being Abram, which means exalted father, to being renamed Abraham, meaning father of a multitude or many nations. Okay, this rightful and ordained position of familial authority is shown for him and prophetically for Isaac. When Abram is concerned by having no begotten son of his own to give his birthright to. And he's concerned about having to give it to one born in his household, but from among his male and female servants, and that's in Genesis 15, verses 2 and 3. Another example, but still with Abram, is when he's concerned over giving the birthright and familial headship and authority to Ishmael from Hagar, when God made the promise to him and Sarai not to him and Hagar. Also contained in chapter 16 is an example of Sarai momentarily usurping not only your husband's authority and headship, but Almighty God's as well. Yes, okay. This is not only momentally, monumentally wrong, but it's disastrous. Verses 1 and 5 show what took place, they say. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now this is after God had told Abraham and her they were going to have a child, even though it took many, many years. But she took it on herself to fix the situation, which means she usurped God's authority and her husband's authority. Okay? She said, to Abram, her husband, go into my servant, okay, go into Hagar, that means have sex with her, but they get married first, okay, and that was allowed back then, but she said, go into my servant, it may be, not it will be, it may be that I can obtain children by her, and then Abram's fault was, it says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He could have said, no way, I love you, I'm not marrying somebody else, besides this is wrong before the Lord, we've got to wait on his timing. So it said, she said, go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children from her. There's not even a guarantee. She could have had girls. And then Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. I mean, he went along with it, okay? So he, she usurped his authority, and he went along with it. He didn't stand his biblical ground like he should have. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt. There's that word again, looking down on somebody as if they have no value. She looked with contempt on Sarai, her mistress. And so Sarai reacted and said to Abram, May the wrong that's been done to me be done unto you, or be on you. That's even more usurping. That's more disrespect. That's more making him a eunuch. That's awful. 
Then she says, I gave my servant to your embrace. He didn't want that, but he did it. And when she saw that she had conceived, Sarai says, she looked on me with contempt. Then she says, may the Lord judge between me and you. In other words, who's wrong here, me or you? Well, it started with Sarah. Okay, now Abraham went along with it. He shouldn't have. But the whole idea of usurping the authority and making him a, a, a basically a eunuch in his own family, in his own household, was Sarai's fault. Okay? She just made Abraham a eunuch. Here, all three of them messed up, right? First of all, Sarai decides not to wait on the Lord's timing, but to take the Lord's promise into her own hands. And we do this too but to a smaller degree. And in so doing, she not only spurns the Lord's authority, but her husband's as well. As I said, instead of following the Lord's lead and submitting to him, she creates a mess that she can't undo concerning Hagar and Ishmael and all of their offspring that came from that. She also barks out orders to Abram instead of listening to and submitting to and obeying him, telling him, not asking or suggesting, telling him, to take Hagar as a wife, have marital relations with her, and having a son and heir that way. You see, this emasculates Abram. What do we say that means? That means taking authority away from him, stripping the God-given authority and headship and making him feel less of a man and weak. This emasculates Abram and humiliates him, and inwardly it just feels terrible, I can tell you. But he is at fault... Because he, instead of correcting her, tells her no, or telling her, instead of correcting her and telling her no, and waiting on the Lord, he agrees and submits to her. Isn't that what we just, what we just read? This is at the heart of feminism. The order is backwards and reversed and re upside down. Abram, probably not wanting to invite conflict, the Bible says, listened to the voice of Sarai. This means she fully took authority, wrongfully took authority, I should add, and he wrongfully submitted to her. He should have lovingly, kindly, yet firmly told her, no, we will do as the Lord has said. And Hagar is to blame because now with her pride, she looks down on Sarai, her employer, her immediate authority. So what began as Abram as head over Sarai, and Sarai as head over Hagar, became Hagar over Sarai, and Sarai over Abram, basically. God knew what he was doing in the setting up of the patriarchal system, and this was not that. Feminism says the sexes are equal. According to the Lord... The ultimate authority he is they're not and they're not meant to be there are other scriptural real-life scenarios as well not just one in first Kings 16 the word God word of God tells us that Jezebel the wife of King Ahab she persuaded him she didn't have any rightful authority over him but she exercised undue influence she usurped his authority she castrated him momentarily at least, but I think it was the way she was from here on out. She persuaded him to worship the false god Baal, her god, which is exactly why God said don't intermarry with peoples of the lands. And to build it, I won't say he because he's a false god, an idol, a piece of wood, whatever, okay? To build it an altar. Further, she ordered the prophets of God that were legitimate prophets of God to be cut off from the land. And she wanted to have Elijah hunted down and killed. Her husband, the king, went along with it. She made him a eunuch. Then there was the demise and beheading of John the Baptist at the hands of Herodias, Herod's wife. This is recounted in Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. He was having a party, and... His daughter danced. Everybody loved it. So he said, I'm going to give you whatever you want, kid. So the, the girl didn't know what to say, so she went to her mom, and her mom said, Aha, I'm going to pull my 
my eunuching of my husband. His wife, it says in Matthew 14, his wife instructed her daughter to tell her father in verse 8 to, quote, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist, unquote. She took a wrongful position of authority over her husband. And the Bible says that Herod acquiesced his authority. He made himself a eunuch and was made one by his wife as well. And in verses 9 and 10, it says, The king was distressed. In other words, it bothered him. He didn't want to have this guy killed. Even though he was in prison, he didn't want to kill him. Certainly not behead him. It says, But because of his oath, his promise that he made to the daughter to give her whatever she wanted, and his dinner guests that he made this promise in front of, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. So John the Baptist, whom Jesus called in Matthew 11, 11, the greatest man to be born of a woman, was killed because Herodias, Herod's wife, had usurped power, even momentarily, from the man Herod, who even in the Gentile world was to be head of his household and family and kingdom. This is feminism. Usurping a man's authority. This is castration. This is, this is um, emasculation. And I don't have to go far beyond my own neighborhood to find three so-called churches that have women as self-made pastors. This is the tale This is the title, I should say, they have assumed for themselves or have accepted from others. They act in this capacity, and they're from different denominations. I don't know what rationale or justification they give for this, since it clearly goes against God's word. So, they're in sin, right? And it's ongoing, it's habitual. They're not pastors for just a day or a week. So, what can we draw from that? Okay, they, they are pastors not a day for a week, but on, on an ongoing basis, on, in a habitual pattern or lifestyle, okay? So, since that goes against God's word, where it says women aren't supposed to exercise authority of a man or teach over a man, okay, unless there's all women and children in church, which I doubt it, okay? This means they're in sin. So, what are we supposed to draw from this? What conclusion are we supposed to understand? Okay. Now, it may sound harsh to us in this love everybody, be tolerant of everything nowadays, but the word of God is right and holy and true, is it not? Now, in 1 John 3, 8, it instructs us by saying, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And also in 1 Peter 3.7, it refers to women as lovingly, but it says the weaker vessel. So they may be, some of these women pastors, they may be true believers. I don't know, it doesn't sound like that. But it's clear that they must. If they are, they've got to repent. And in order to do so, they have to relinquish these possessions to not just any men, but able men, and the Bible gives instructions on this too, who meet the biblical standards of overseers. So men have a role in this, and they have to assume the rightful place. They can't allow themselves to be castrated. They should stand up and say something to the people, and and then if, if they're not going to listen, then they're going to stay in sin, and then you need to go somewhere else. Because the church can't be founded on sin. Now, to be sure, men are imperfect. <laughs> and they have their own issues, yes. But the reason for this podcast now that we're having is, is how the God-ordained and established patriarchal system has been turned on its head to a large degree. As we talked about a few episodes ago, once the gate that is meant to be shut is forced open, it rarely, if ever, gets shut again, and historically and observedly, it gets flung open and eventually taken off its hinges altogether. As we get further away from Genesis in our lives and closer to Revelation in our lives, these types of disobedience and rebellion only grow. 
It's bad enough in the home and society at large, but once again, the ways of the world creep into the church, the body of Christ. Scriptures like 1 Corinthians 15.33, which says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Excuse me, that's Proverbs. No, it is 1 Corinthians 15.33, which quotes Proverbs. Do not be deceived. Bad company, the world, corrupts good character or good morals, the body of Christ. Romans 12, 2a is what they call it. It's the first part of chapter 2. It says, don't be conformed to this world. In other words, don't act like them. Don't follow their pattern. James 1.27 ends with, keep oneself unstained from the world. Hebrews 13.14 says, the world is not our home. In other words, don't be here. Don't be locked in to this system, this mold, this, this caste, this way of doing things. Because we don't belong here. We don't do things this way. Acts 5.29 We must obey God rather than men. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That means turning things upside down and thinking it's a good thing. And so many others testify to this fact that the world can and does negatively affect Jesus' church. We must, brothers and sisters, we must be diligent and keep ourselves holy. And, Paul, and Peter says, in all our conduct. Yeah, the Bible says we're in the world, but it also says we're not of the world. We don't belong to it. We shouldn't act like it. We shouldn't conform to it. Even with all that happened with Abram and Sarah and that whole fiasco, okay, something eventually changed. Because sometime after, the Lord called her Sarah and called Abram Abraham, he was able to say of her in 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6, which we mentioned earlier, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, meaning acknowledging his authority over her. And then it says, and you are her children, or her daughters, if you do this, if you do good. And why is this the right and preferred way of our Savior? Verse 4 gives us the answer. But instead, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, unfading, never-ending beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. May we hear and listen and receive and heed what the Spirit is saying to us now and in the coming days, women and men. Amen.